Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lennon. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Um, how do we frame this? Ireland obviously took their diorolite after the World Cup and the French just, I don't know, stayed in the bay or something because they're still hung over. No. Tell me, why did Ireland beat France so heavily with their best ever win in France, best ever Six Nations performance? What they, what they didn't refer to, from what I can remember, was sticking to the, sticking to the process. But they... Talked about sticking to the process. They, did, they just didn't refer explicitly to it. Um, both Josh van der Fleer and Andy Farrell were consistent in the consistency of the squad, the learnings as they refer to them, how they look back at matches where they've played well and matches where they've played badly. Um, Farrell in particular referenced games that they played two, like two or three years ago. None... None with you know particular detail but it wasn't it isn't that it's it's quite it isn't the last match that defines everything it's very much the idea of being on a journey um and i think for everybody because i think the media shaped it that way like that that journey was the world cup um and i think one of the things that struck me was that you can say almost anything you want if you've won test matches. And certainly if you've won as many test matches as Andy Farrell, whereas when you lose, you're under pressure, you're under scrutiny, and you're explaining. And, like, again, it's it's just that idea of win today, win tomorrow. Like, when you win, whatever you say as a coach um, becomes credible. And I think that... So set, set aside the winning, which is something that Andy Farrell's team have made a real uh, habit of. The the actions and the explanations and the constant learning and the looking forward, that's all a culture that Andy Farrell has preached and has built and has developed in his team. So I just think they were far more prepared than France were, far more ready to go again. Um, I think also tactically they were far more prepared for that match than France were. Um but I think they have a real understanding of what they're trying to do. I yeah, I absolutely agree. So in in terms of their approach from a sort of the broadest picture, Andy Farrell said that he didn't believe in cutting the legs out from under the team. And he stuck with very similar squad with a number of a number of changes. You know, forced by injury, some of them, forced by retirement, one of them. And then one clearly of his own volition. So in reverse order, Joe, uh, Joe McCarthy, uh, Jack Crowley, and then Calvin Nash brought into the team 
all playing, all starting in their first Six Nations games. Two of them playing in their first Six Nations games. And um, so that's that's a sort of broad selection picture. In terms of tactically what they did well, this is the bluffer's answer, but everything. Uh, the most important tactical improvement and technical improvement was in the line-out where they were superb, both on their own ball and on French ball. Um, but also in because there was a really, really marked improvement and because the set piece is a set piece, it's an isolated piece of game starting with a dead ball, it's very easy to pick that one out. The attacking game without Sexton, I was worried if it would become more rudimentary, not as sophisticated. It's just as sophisticated. It's different now, but it was a real point of difference um, compared with the French game with their changed halfbacks. And... I think I I sort of attempted to fill in a third one for the law of three, but the third one is a performance thing, I suppose. It's just we hardly dropped the ball. We didn't miss many tackles. Um, Jack Crowley kicked six out of seven. Had a had a miss kick, but other than that, very good. James Lowe's kicking from hand was excellent. Gibson Park, his kicking was excellent. Um, the passing was really slick. Uh, the footwork was, you know, very impressive in terms of footwork during contact, after all the things that Ireland have been good at for say eight years, like ball placement, clearing out rocks really efficiently and incredibly quickly. That was all there. So it was just, it was a complete performance. Um, and then psychologically a, a team who was really up for it in a bear pit of a stadium. Let's talk about the line out then. Um, there's a, well, obviously getting them all right is really great. It was such a big problem prior to the World Cup that we didn't manage to fix during the World Cup, really. And I remember saying during the World Cup that uh, in playoff football, turnovers kill you. And... I said at the time, is it not better that we just throw up someone, you know, at two or whatever and make sure we get the ball rather than trying to risk, you know, better ball off the back of the line out. I remember we had a discussion about how sim- how simple like, and how quick the Springboks line out seemed and the All Blacks line out seemed. And ours seemed a lot more simple this time. I, th- I think that was the big characteristic was... There was very little movement on the ground and our jumper just got up much, much quicker. Like there was the characteristic for me in the build up in the World Cup build up and in the World Cup itself was that we had a lot of movements from guys going from the front to the back, lifters, you know, a guy running forward doing a dummy jump, running forward again. Um and th- that was the philosophy of of Paulie's line it was that we'd we'd throw in a, like a lot of a lot of deception and we'd fool them and like the whole line it was built around that 
And I think, like, when Nusa Forda did his, his debrief, he, he basically said, look, you know, we're on the right track. There, there's, no, there's nothing really big strategically to look at. Um, but I think anybody looking at it will go the line out. And, you know, like, one of the frustrating things from the sort of the, the sideline was that the media was so uncritical of Paul O'Connell. It was like, oh, my goodness, they're like, they they'd be worried now that they'd be in trouble with Paulie. And you go, no, Paulie'd be worried that his line-out's getting taken apart. Like, Paul O'Connell's got the problem here. Um, Like, his fingerprints are all over this. It's not going well. You have to give him credit and praise for this one because he changed his philosophy, and then what he put in its place was far more effective. So I think one of the other th- characteristics that Ireland did, and, and you sort of commented on it, and then it's only when you're listening back to the pod knowing the result and you see kind of which way it went, is that you go, how, how come he didn't make more of that? But you asked about uh, the second row of, of, of Williamsa and uh, Gabrilag, and then we talked about the back row not being particularly dynamic, although it was strong and big and the fact that they throw to Olivon, that with Kroos and, and Aldrich in, with that second row combination, they're not going to be quick to get up. And like when you've got two Alagi on your bench, um, you've nothing coming in the second row to change that. Like you've got a big, powerful ball carrier, but a guy like who's not tall and who's practically impossible to lift as an opponent. So, like Ireland were able to look at, and I, I don't know how they called them, but Ireland were able to look at where France had their players and throw it there. Now, that's what it appeared to be because there was one or two where Olivon was beside the thrower, but more often than not, like the Irish guy was up with no opposition to him. So, like, they threw it to burn in the first line, they threw it to burn in the second line, both times just up fast and, and unopposed. Uh, France put Olivon up in Omani's space in the second line, they threw Palm up, uh, third line out, very little movement on the ground, again, just up fast. Through to three and four, um, very rarely threw it to two, very rarely went beyond four in terms of like how you'd, if you split the line out into seven kind of equal spaces for how I like to think of a traditional line out where you've got, you know, a prop at the front, an open side at the back and you're throwing one is at the front, seven is at the back, over the top is over the number seven. That's the sort of the way that I'd look at it. So, you know, basically four is, is the midpoint of the line out. Um, again, Byrne won the next line out, which I think was, what, the fourth unopposed. He went up against Aldrich. Aldrich had no lift. Um, Byrne got up at two unopposed in the next one. Palm got up at, at the front in the next one. Joe Mack went up unopposed off the next one. It, was, it wasn't until after half an hour where Byrne won it against Gabriag that Gabriag actually got up in the air and put pressure on him. And we were still able to to win it off the top. Sorry, did you say after half time or after half, half an hour? After half an hour, just okay. on twenty eight minutes of the match. So I think that was that was one of the features, and that sort of that kept on going. It was just very little movement, very quick in the air, simple, and targeting where where they didn't have much uh, opposition. Like they weren't putting up many jumpers. The other thing that comes in is that often van der Fleer is at uh, scrum half. So oftentimes, like Ireland's default line-out is a six-man line-out, which will have Porter and Furlong in it, and it'll have uh, Josh in as the scrum half. 
and then they'll just they'll throw to any one of the four guys in the middle. But you basically you're you're aiming at Doris, who doesn't get the ball very much. They don't throw to him very much, but he's an option. Joe Mack, O'Mahony, and Byrne. And O'Mahony and Byrne are, are seem to be the, the the easiest guys to lift. And it's just a matter of get them up, get them up quick. But they'll use Vanderfleer as an option. So either Vanderfleer might take it off the top and pass it, but more often than not, they'll just get it to the back and he'll pass it to Gibbo. Sometimes they play a seven-man line-out, but oftentimes Gibbo is number one in that. And they still have Josh in at scrum half, and Josh will get the ball, and he'll pass it wide to Gibbo. And what it gives is, you have to sort of, yeah, you have to think about it. It sets an offside line, the fact that it's a mall. If I say you have to think about it as the defense, you sort of have to go, right, like, are these guys going to stick their heads down and drive? Because they've got their open side at the back, who's set up. Occasionally, Vanderfleer will pick off the back of that mall and he'll charge in and he'll he'll make guys commit. And he's so fast off the back that if you're waiting to pounce on JGP, if you haven't committed to the mall, if you're thinking about committing to the mall, like he's a tough man to tackle because he's got that explosiveness. So Vanderfleer really adds a wrinkle to the game. And I think it's it's one of those things where Again, we talked about it last week. Like you look to do things that your players are good at. If you're a coach, Ireland get a huge amount from Vanderfleer because he's 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 good at particular things. He's got a very good passing game. Like he's very skillful. Um, he's another one of our could be scrum halves, and he's very fast. He's got very good acceleration. So you don't. So he's he's able to throw those passes to Gibbo, and Gibbo's able to throw long passes without too much pressure on him. Um, and he's also able to explode off the back, and he's able to drive as a threat. So Ireland just create a lot of opportunities for themselves with that, and that line-out was the basis for, I would say, a real characteristic Farrell performance in attack. And what I mean by that is that what I think that Farrell does, particularly in the first match of the Six Nations when they've had a bit more time, is that he looks to attack, I think, certain sort of strong areas of the opposition defense or key men for the opposition defense and to put them off balance, to impose a disequilibrium in the opponent's defense. So what that looked like last year against the Welsh was that Ireland played an awful lot off nine, played an awful lot of Gibbo, off Gibbo, forwards running, because that's where uh, Tipperick and Faletau were defending. They were defending slightly wider, but what we were looking to do was to tie up those guys. And every opportunity we got in the first like 45, 50 minutes, 55 minutes, before the game breaks up and becomes much more uh, a sort of test of athleticism and, and concentration, is target those two guys in defence. And once you have them tied up, then you can look to attack the next guys. What this looked like against France was splitting the French centres and in particular trying to attack Fiku, who's the captain of their defence. So we used Bundy a huge amount, but we also used James Lowe coming in from the blindside wing and every time that they were doing it, they were looking to split the centres and attack Fiku. And like, how do you get it that in the next phase, Fiku and Dante aren't going to be beside each other because one of them is going to be on the ground. So that was that was a real characteristic of what Ireland were going to do off first phase attack. And like whatever you see a team do off first phase attack is is what they're trying to do. Like that that's the stuff that they're planning. They're the moves that they're calling. There was one 
call in like so the, the, there was a few ways that that was done but the the call the, the one that stood out to me is the most successful was that at the end i think of the first half ireland had or was it the beginning of the second i think it was the end of the first ireland had brought james Lowe off his wing uh, running around from his blindside wing running at daunty earlier on they'd run bundy on a number of occasions either bundy taking the ball flash from uh, from Crowley or else Bundy at first receiver all the time running at Fiku and Dante. And this time Bundy was there running the dummy line and they gave it to Calvin Nash. And Calvin Nash went oh, right yeah. in between yeah. the two centres. And they both had to tackle him. And th- this was to me the trademark move. And I'll, I'll try to still, find it. Still in the first half, yeah. Um, I think it was in the build-up to our second try. The next thing they did from that was they ran Doris. It was the build-up to Burns try. The next thing they did that was they ran Doris, and Doris cut, took it off Gibbo, and ran a sort of an outside inline at Aldrich. So what, what Ireland were trying to do after running at Fiku was run at Aldrich. And Sheehan is the man that I think Farrell has targeted at this. Sheehan just goes in and clears out. Um, in, in this case, it was Aldrich. He makes sure that he cleans out Aldrich. He makes sure that he ends up on top of Aldrich. And they, they, they tried to take Alders out of the game as much as possible off that sort of second phase attack. And then if they could get past that, once they got to that sort of uh, sort of phase of attack, they looked for Jalabert. Well, where is Jalabert now? If we've taken Fiku out, if we've sort of broken up Fiku and Dante as a midfield pairing and they're not connected anymore, it means Jalabert is somewhere where he's uncomfortable. Where is he? And we're running him. And that was that was a huge part of what we did from um, line-out ball. And because our line-out worked so well, it allowed us to completely impose our game. But we had a very, very clear idea of what we were trying to do in attack. The other thing that we tried to do an awful lot of, and did an awful lot of, was kick a penno. Like, there's a free kick Ireland get from, I think it's a scrum in the second half. Anyway, we end up with a free kick. And... Doris, who actually seemed, appeared to have taken over as captain, sort of has a word with Crowley, and they launch a bomb, and they just launch it straight at Fiku. Or not Fiku, Penno. Now, as it turns out, France get the bounce, and they end up attacking on the far side of the pitch, so Penno's on the right wing. They end up attacking on the left-hand side of the pitch, and they sort of stretch us a bit, but Penno doesn't deal with it well. Like, he, he ends up sort of putting his hand up, and about the ball bounces back from his hand, and... Um, he it sort of bounces to a teammate but like it's it's luck but I was looking at it and I was sort of going do they think that Penno's uncomfortable underneath the ball or do they just want to take him out as a broken field runner because if you think of that try that France scored in Lansdowne Road last year like the threat to me of Penno is that once you get to Jouet Jouet and you allow him to float behind guys who are making a run as a support runner, you're in real trouble. So you just take him out of the equation by making him the start line. And you sort of go, we're going to kick it to you. We're going to put you in a very particular spot. We're going to put guys on top of you because we know exactly where you are and we're not letting you run support because we can tackle you. And we're just, we're, we're just going to kick it all day. So even when James, like once or twice, Ireland kicked to the right-hand side of the pitch in terms of Ireland looking up. But more often than not, they just kicked to the left. They kicked to the left, the Irish left so much, the French right. All match. They, they kept so many kicks over on that side of the pitch. And again, you go, 
Ireland had a very, very clear plan, to my mind, watching the match, rewatching it, about how they wanted to play against France. Now, at the match, as soon as Calvin Nash scored the try, I was like, this is done. Like, we're 14 points up. We look so much better than these guys, so much more controlled. They might score tries through accident or through a referee giving it to them, but they're, they're not going to be coherent enough to make up that distance against an Irish team. And I was kind of surprised that he took off Antonio and Bay as early as he did because they were a real threat with the ball in hand. Um, like Cyril Bay is a super rugby player and Antonio is an absolute handful. And the guys that they brought on just aren't the same footballers whatsoever. Now, they're, they're fresher and they put pressure on us in the first scrum. But like... That doesn't mean much, you know? And France even looked better when when Cyril Bay came back on. Um, but th- that was a sort of a characteristic at the match. I thought that Bundy had a super game when I was watching it. And I thought Ty Byrne had a super game when I watched When I re-watched it, I, <laughs> the famous, like, out of 10 ratings, you couldn't but give Ty Byrne a 10. He was absolutely superb. And, like, for his try... Ireland attacked, Ireland had attacked, like we were sort of running through that, Ireland had attacked um, Fico earlier and Doris had run at um, at Aldrich. And when Crowley gets the ball, he looks up and he's got Doris on the inside of him and Doris has been marked by Aldrich. So Aldrich, like, it's only human nature that you're going, there's no way I'm letting Doris pass me. So Aldrich is, like, he's... He's focused on Doris. And Doris is live. And you can see Dante is looking at Bundy. And he's gone, this guy's running at me all day. Tygburn, like, has, when I say has a hand laid on him, barely a hand laid on him. Dante sticks out his mitt and falls in his arse. And Tygburn just sailed through. And you're there going, that's Andy Farrell's attack, where this guy, it isn't like, you know, oh, you ran this under overs line. It's more than that. It's like, we are going to target guys that are strong for you and we're going to put them off their balance and it's that sneaky little punch that you don't see coming. That's the one that gets you. And there's such a level of understanding that like, really makes you appreciate what a good coach Andy Farrell is because it isn't... Like a lot of it is kind of, oh, he looks like the best dad in the world type of thing. Like everybody likes going into camp and he's he's very good with the media and there's no sort of hangover. And he does all that sort of stuff. And he's emotionally, you know, like he's he's got a lot of EQ. But right at the core of it is he knows exactly what he wants his team to do. And they took France apart. To the extent that like you're looking at the some of the penalties that France got were dodgy. Like that one where Crowley gets up and competes for the ball and it gets... It gets swapped around and the France France get given a penalty. Ireland never get that given against them in Lansdowne Road. Even if that match was replayed in Marseille with the diff, with the different TMO, I'd find it hard to believe that Ireland would have that given against them 10 out of 10 times. Like, and there was there, there was one or two others. Like there was at least one in the build-up to Penno's try that you're going, there's no way that's a penalty. I, I don't, like such a harsh decision to get made. So... Not to be giving the refs an awful hard time, but I just thought that, like, the balance of the decisions didn't go Ireland's way. No, got got uh, got half killed on the penalty count. We conceded thirteen to France's seven. 
Um, and that was, it was the day my feeling about that was the first half ones were the typical, I've just sent a lot off. I'm going to make it up to you. Um, really pretty obviously and the crowd gave the one on the on the the crowd went fucking bananas when Fico fell over yeah I think that I think that was just a knock on by Crowley that was all it was oh there was yeah there was nothing in there to penalise um, absolutely nothing at all you've fairly um, <laughs> fairly got the old Irish thing then do you want to talk about what you thought about France maybe yeah I do um, the, the fact that you, uh, clearly missing, you know, two of the Musketeers in Dupont and Entomac, and replacing them with a pairing from the form team in France, uh, who played together all the time in Bordeaux, Lucou and uh, Jalabert, made sense. It's made it's the correct way to approach it. I thought that it highlighted how much their their French performance highlighted how much they have been reliant. On Dupont, um, this is hardly rocket science. But Luca's like Luca's a decent player. He's getting shredded in the French media for not being Dupont. Uh, I felt that of the two, Jalabert was Jalabert was uh, was the worst performing halfback. I thought he offered France so little control or discipline compared to how Entomac dominates their kicking game and is a better defender than build. Whereas Jalabert's, uh, France didn't have much ball, but Jalabert's line kicking was, I felt, pretty much atrocious. Um, he doesn't take the the kicks, that goal. Uh, and then no no discipline with their kicking game. The discipline that Entomac has shown since he's come into the team this real devil-may-care-looking-out half who plays one of the most boring games of constantly kicking ball down the middle of the pitch in his own half. Chalabert hardly kicked any of those. So you have a French team that's been playing a very structured way of rugby for three and a half of the last four years. And all of a sudden, you take out not just the players, but the structure. And it was, it was really revealing and quite incredible how badly organized their midfield was. Andrew's talked about very well there in, um, in terms of their defense, but in terms of their attack as well, like you obviously had drops that they happen, but they they shouldn't. Like every everyone who's played rugby knows that occasionally you're gonna drop the ball. But and you feel sort of sorry if it's a drop, but like at pro level, like drop passes shouldn't happen. Bad passes shouldn't happen. They really shouldn't. And it's a different standard. So there was too many drops in French half because of bad passing, bad alignment. Also, just so little. Jerry Thorny wrote a really good article about it yesterday. About so little sophistication in the French attack when they did attack. The one moment of, of sophistication, and it's not even really sophistication, it's just a good basic ploy, was when they when they ran their heavies towards for the Penno try. Bang, 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 moving left. And then Penno comes from behind another player. Just Jalabert. Uh, no, for for Penno to, to run into the space that that Jalabert's oh, provided sorry. him with, like, which is almost a classic French support play, come from directly behind the man with the ball. Uh, and France looked. I was down in that corner, and you're going, Jesus! If they can do this any time to us, like that's going to be hard to defend. 
but they had such a problem getting into our half. They didn't have a fucking clue how to how to get into our twenty two. Like the their second try, the Gabrielag try, was essentially, I would say, gifted to them. They got the dodgy penalty, won a line out. He didn't fucking score, <laughs> you know. He didn't score, and they get given a, a try and a, a yellow card. You know, that is that is the roughest side of refereeing we might have in this entire championship. Um, so their halfbacks let them down. I think they're. I think Galtier has sort of found out a little bit in terms of. Some of some of it is is the appointment of his new coaches to replace the outgoing coaches. But some of it is like, you're you're the fucking coach. You're the person who's still here. Why is their attack so bad? Or if you're a French, why is our attack so bad? And I think that the thing that surprised me most was really their lack of coherent ideas in their attack. That's a team that has been together a long time. And again, it didn't have that many changes from a World Cup team, they had to change the second row due to injuries. And then they changed the halfback. So, but there's a lot of, a lot of players were still in situ. Yeah. Uh, so they've regressed quite a lot. Losing DuPont has shown them up as a more one-dimensional team, not one-dimensional Reliant, them, I think. Yeah, they're overly reliant on one player in a way that even when you have a great player like a Sexton or a, a McCaw or Carter, like obviously All Blacks had loads. I'm trying to think of another team which had one great player. Like they almost, they look like a, a much, much better version of Italy with prime Parise in there and taking Parise away. That's how reliant they have become on DuPont. And for a team with as strong a culture, as strong a league, and as many good players as France, that is really highlighting bad coaching. One player, as good as one player is, should make the difference between um, like being one of the best sides in the world and losing by 17 at home. I think, I think as well, like Ireland... Farrell's good at asking guys to do things that they're good at. Um, and I think he he used Crowdy particularly well. Like one one move that stood out for me was Ireland had um, a scrum after about 21 minutes sort of attacking in the French half. And they went channel one. So you see like Doris picks it up off his left foot and Gibbo's going wide immediately. So... Not only does he use Gibbo's pace, but Gibbo gives it a Crowley. Crowley burns Luku. I, I thought Luku, while he wasn't particularly good, was by far the the lesser offender of the French halfbacks. Like he put in a huge amount of tackles, which isn't necessarily what you want your scrum half doing, but like he had to make them because he wasn't really being helped out by anybody. Like Olivon doesn't make that many tackles. Luka made, I think, I think, I don't know what the stats are, but I think like Luku seemed appeared to make more tackles than the open side. Um and then Whereas Jalabert was a defensive liability. Like, at least Luku made the tackles. They went looking for Jalabert, and like, sometimes he sort of he wasn't even there, never mind missing them. Um, but he gave it to Crowley, and Crowley burned Luku. And you're there going, Crowley is a real threat with the pace. There was even a little bit, little vignette near the, in the first half where France were on the attack, and the ball had been blown up, but it had got out to Penno. 
and Penno was starting to make a run and Crowley was kind of going with him. And you're thinking to yourself, well, Penno burned Crowley. Like he should have burned Crowley. But there was enough sort of eye contact between the two of them that Crowley was going, had the measure of you. Had the touchdown as my friend, I would have got to you. And you're going, Jesus, like this is, this is a fairly new experience for Ireland. Like unless you go back to David Humphreys, who was fast. Like Sexton had that sort of galloping pace. Um, that was actually quite a threat, surprisingly. Like once he kind of got into his run, but he, he didn't have massive acceleration. He did, I won't say he was slow. He, he did have that galloping pace. Um, he had good sort of top end speed, even though he sort of had a like kind of a, not a free flowing running style. Whereas Raj wasn't any sort of a line speed. Like Raj had no real foot pace, you know? Whereas Crowley, like, is not only is he agile, he's actually got like a bit of a bit of toe. So this is great. And Josh van der Fleer got held up over the line. But like on another day, Ireland scored from that. And Crowley's been the one to set it up. So that's a real threat. But getting asking a guy, putting a guy in a one-on-one where he's using one of his best attributes, and he's outside Gibbo, who's also fast, like is, is clever coaching. Because you're getting a guy to do something that he's good at. And I think that was a very good call that they they practiced it and they knew they were going to do it. Um, he had one or two things that didn't come off, but like he put in one, he put in one kick that went straight out into touch, but it was so close um, to being spot on. And Ireland had pulled France long and Crowley had gone back and they pulled the, they put the, they, they pulled the ball back to him. And he was so close to having France nail back into their 22 that you're going on again on another day that sticks. But like he looked, very, very comfortable at that level. And he'll only get better now with that confidence and with that experience having played like that. So I thought that was that was very positive. The other guy who'd be very close to getting a 10 was Hugo Keenan, who is just an outstanding rugby player. And Ireland were very concentrated or very focused off their kickoffs. And some of these were Crowley. Like Crowley put up some absolute bombs of, of restart, drop kick restarts. One of which I think went to Olivan, I think the first yeah. one. Yeah. But the, he hit one um, after maybe France had scored a penalty after 28 minutes, where in, in, in both the Ireland kick long and right into the middle of the 22. In the first one, they got Olivan, and it was Keenan that chased and dropped Olivan, and Luku had to clear to touch. Um, they, but they put France in the middle of the pitch. The next one, they chased and they tackled Ramos. And what's positive about that, and you go back to Jalabert, means like Ramos is your kicker. If the scrum half's going to pass to somebody and that guy's going to kick it, that someone is Ramos. And if Ramos is on the ground at the bottom of the rook, there isn't anybody else. So Jalabert has to stand up and look for it and then make a kick. Or he's got to sort of go, no, no, to Luku, you do it. And he sort of said, he did the ladder. And Luku sort of had to kick it out. And that's not necessarily Luku's game. And again, it's just that it's different playing for Bordeaux when, you know, you've got sort of parity in the pack and your backs are miles better than it is playing for France when your forwards are on the back foot. Like, it's it's not the same sort of preparation. And it's, again, it's just that reminder that if you find somebody who can play international level rugby, you tend to keep on picking them because it's not as easy as it looks. It's not just a matter of, I will throw somebody else in, we'll throw somebody else in and it'll work out for me. There's not that many opportunities to get up for it, to prepare for it. If you can't do it, it's it's pretty harsh. You've got national newspapers giving you threes and fours 
and lashing you out of it. You don't really want to read this and hear this. Uh, it's a hard place to go back to. So, like, that's why the same guys keep keep on getting picked. It's a very demanding environment. But, like, I, Keenan was the one in both instances who chased that. He put in a great cover tackle on Penno very early on, and he mm. put in a great dumper tackle on Penno uh, later on in the first half where he drove him back convincingly. And he really seemed to sort of set himself up to mark Penno again. I thought from one of the criticisms you can make for Ireland against New Zealand was very few guys played their best game. Whereas I thought Hugo Keenan had pretty much his best game against France. Like he he really seemed to concentrate and go, I'm going to do particular things against particular guys, Penno being the main guy. And he got nearly all of them. Like he, he was just brilliant. Um, Gibson Park as well. Gibson fella. Park was absolutely superb. I thought Jack Conan uh, was a real handful when he came on. And you sort of appreciate that 6-2 split, the fact that you can bring on himself and Ryan Baird and give your pack a real shot in the arm in, in the last 20 minutes because like Jack Conan was excellent. Yeah, like we've said this before with regards, say, to Leinster more often because, you know, it's Ireland's first game of the season. But, like, pick your best players on the bench um, where you're strong. Like, Leinster are strong in the back row. Ireland are strong in the back row and second row. So if Ireland had brought on, like, if we'd picked two second rows or if we'd brought on Baird as the second row, that would have worked as well. But, like, we're, we're short now in, in, the, uh, in the back line with... Hansen out, now Ringrose out, Jimmy O'Brien out. Um, so it makes so much sense to go six two. Like it really, end, we really ended up killing them in the end. As as again, I referenced Jerry Thorny's good article. It's the one here he talks about Farrell as a selector in the headline. But he pointed out that Ireland kicked down the middle of the pitch, kept the ball in play a lot, tired out the French pack, and then by the end of the game, when we had uh, played say 60 say an hour and roughly 20 no probably half an hour of that was without no would be more 40 minutes without Valencia and we just thought yeah we'll just maul these guys now they only have seven in their pack they're all tired and we scored those two quick maul tries both of which the second one the Kelleher one there's an amazing effort from James Lowe in it so like you'd look at him and you're going like He's like a proper forward mauling. Um, the first, the Dan Sheen one comes so quickly and so easy. Oh, that is bad maul defense from France. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, why do they defend that badly? And I was thinking, probably because like they've got a 19 year old fella who's hasn't played much in, uh, and they have seven forwards, and a 19 year old is one of them. That they ha- they're they're mauling as a unit. In that one was bad. So again. It's funny, you know, to look back on the game and have other people draw things to your attention in this case, only and go, yeah, that's spot on. And, and when, for example, when um, when Doris said to Crowley, like, for that, that free kick off a scrum that we got, he just goes, put it up. <laughs> it's not like, run uh, fucking Omaha 56-2. You know, he just goes, put it up. <laughs> Kick it, kick it up near a penalty. Yeah. Just here you we know, are. Kick it a penalty. Yeah, this is what we'll do if we get a free. They probably just go to it, but like, just put it up. So, well, my point is there, I, 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 you can't tell how much of this, some of the stuff you hear, they're going, this is what you read from the game. And like other times you're going, they're 
they could be reading some of this stuff like off the hoof. I don't know if they 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 were told at halftime, make sure you make sure you maul in the last twenty minutes, or they're just they're going like they don't have a fuck. They can't get enough players into this mall. And your man Possos only played about twenty games pro rugby. Like he's a big unit, but he's not going to be. He's not going to know how the French team maul. He was only called into the squad on Friday, so let's just maul this one quickly. That actually leads me back to a question I was thinking about while you were listing off the the lineouts. The Tyke Burns calling the lineout, we believe, right? And I presume it was James Ryan mostly during the World Cup, or was Tyke Byrne doing it during the World Cup as well? James Ryan mostly, but James Ryan was was uh, wasn't in the starting, wasn't in the the team in the quarterfinal. Yeah. Um. Who? What? So, what's the what's the decision making process? Is it like if you have a left hand side of the pitch inside the twenty two, or like between the ten and the twenty two, or on the halfway? You have kind of like we should do this, or is it a kind of game of rock paper scissors where like we went to two, so like am I going to double bluff them and go to two again, or will we change it up this time to four or five? It's a great question. I saw I saw an actual, and I'll just talk a little bit about this because you know whenever you lose a game, and uh, whenever any team you're involved with loses a game, you'll hear something fucking awful. There's no plan B, <laughs> and to. The fact that people think that there's a plan A and then there's a plan B is like, what is plan A? And well, identify plan A for me there and then I'll tell you what plan B was. I saw a game plan from an emerging Ireland uh, tour. This is for a decade ago. And they have things which they're doing in different parts of the pitch lined out. They do, they have it like, they have a drawing of a pitch and they go area, area, area. This is what we do in this sort of areas, but within that, there's an awful lot of room for scope. You know, if you're in, if you're in your if you're in your twenty two, uh, like it's not going like make sure we fucking do loads of gimmicks. Like there is there's just a project. This this is our exit strategy. This is starter plays in the middle of the pitch, and this is back then it was like meat grinder classic meat grinder stuff when you get into the 22 like keep the ball keep putting them under pressure do this and off touch lines uh but within that like there's a huge scope like that's strategy rather than tactics i don't know those maybe one of the other answers so i i what i mean i don't know Somebody has to say, we're going to have five in this, we're going to have six in this, we're going to have seven in this, and we're going to go in with a setup where we've got Josh at scrum half or a setup where we've got Gibbo at scrum half. So they have to have that basic format where they call it. When Porter goes up and says something to Sheehan, I don't know, is that it locked in? Like, is, is that the, this is where we're going to call it? Or, like... Do they have two options? So I guess I guess that's that's the difficult bit, is that if you're playing against South Africa and you're playing against Peter Steph Detroit and you make a call and you there turn, he is. You turn to three and there he is, do you sort of go, shite, plan B, you know? Like, call an audible. Call it, yeah, you basically call an audible and go, like we'll put up two pods here yeah. and we'll throw it to where he's not. I don't know what that's like because like Francis' line out wasn't particularly good. Um, 
That's the bit that I don't know. I I imagine given you that could have made up an answer. <laughs> given that, but I'd imagine that given that, like Porter goes up and says something to Sheehan, that that's the call. So the lads, when they're approaching, they know what the structure is going to be. They know that Josh is in. He's going to throw to two, <laughs> and then I'll tell you. There's one line I call, but I, I know guess every time I'm just going to tell you what it is right now. The Scots have a line out on their own five meter line. They're going to the chuck top. it over the top every fucking time. But say, say like when you were talking about Dan Sheehan's try, when you when you rewatch the match, they shout Bundy, 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 and you're there going, okay. I'm going to presume that Bundy is just an overrule card for the hard drive. That if, if we shout in Bundy, like Bundy and James Lowe are going to be joining them all here. Like, and that's an audible. So in, in terms of what are we going to do from this? Like, are we going to have Josh bringing it down and ripping and then doing a sneak? Are we going to have Josh bringing it down and, and giving it to Gibbo? Are we going to have Josh bringing it down and... and Give it back inside and, to Dan, yeah. And she and looping around the back of it and running. Like, that they've got all those sort of options and they'll have tried them all. But when... When they shout Bundy, it doesn't matter. They're just going to take it down and woof. get a laptop back off somebody. So, what, yeah, I mean, just I, I'm, I'm just curious because let's say every time Ireland kick to the corner and they get within seven metres of the line, they do X, they want to set up a mall. Surely some team would be like, they're going to set up a mall. They're going to go up at four or two and set up a mall. Can't, like, what can we do to counteract that? And like, I don't know. I, it, it's just like, when does the team go... I'm going to do one of those where I just throw it to you. Are you watch it? <laughs> yeah. And you just throw it to the first guy and pass it back. Yeah, like, no, what, like what, that what, stuff is, like, that who makes stuff that is call? complete intellectual property. You know, you don't know. Is Ty getting it from our offensive coordinator? Is what I want to know. In his earpiece, that's yeah. where he wears the head guard. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll just say one last thing about the match. To uh, I watched the, uh, the guts of the 2023 Ireland-France game in Aviva in Land's End Road on Friday afternoon prior to the game. And it really buoyed me because I was like, that game was quite close for the second half, but we were much better than them. And they sort of, they managed to keep themselves in it. And then we left a lot of points on the pitch in that game. I think two knock-ons over the line, one of which possibly got a penalty from... I think maybe one we scored a try from later on. Certainly one held up over the line. At least one held up over the line. And then we ended up winning it by, uh, I think we won by 14. Um, We won it by 14, I think, because we were were 10 up and they got a drop goal and then the last try uh, made it 14 again. Uh, And that made me think, geez, we were quite a bit further ahead of them in that game. Then, then it felt like it felt like the last two games were kind of just like knife edge games. But realistically, even when they beat us over there in Paris two years ago, and they were a good bit better than us in that day, I thought we still made it a lot. We still made it four points in that game, and we, you know, we made the decision to take our points and say we'll come back and go and try and get another score, and we didn't end up getting one. So, um, the other thing I noticed was that there was only two players in the entire back line. They were the same. Everyone else had changed. It was Murray, Sexton, Lowe was playing, Keenan was playing, and then uh, it was... Uh, Stockton and Ringer? No, um, Stuart McCluskey. Stuart McCluskey, oh, sorry, Stuart McCluskey. Ringrose, oh, and Hansen were the all the other changes. And um, despite all that raft of changes, you weren't going like, 
obviously the, the change of Sexton is a huge loss, but that's like unavoidable. With Nash coming in, I was I basically was like, this guy's totally the next, like totally deserving, wouldn't shift Ring Rose out to right wing in some kind of like, listen, Calvin, we'll give you your go against Italy. But like, it was like, yeah, this is, you've waited your turn. Like, essentially, I would say you didn't get a place in the World Cup squad because there was a need to bring Earls for the squad, maybe. And this guy's been in good form for ages. And they backed him and he delivered. So um, I just thought that was, that was even with all those changes, it's like, yeah, there's actually quite a good few good players in this team. All right. There was a few other differences because I, I looked at notes from the the same match last year. And one of the other differences was that in the match last year, Ireland competed in the Rook an awful lot. And they made France sandbag. They made France commit more guys to the breakdown than they wanted to. And they left enough. It meant that the French ended up with a lot of guys on the ground at each breakdown. And Ireland kicked an awful lot in that match. And I know it had huge ball and play time, but like from what, what I wrote down at the time was that... Ireland were kicking the ball an awful lot in their own half. Um, they weren't looking to play very much from their own half at all. Whereas in this match, what struck me watching it was uh, the line speed. We didn't compete very much on the ground at all. Now, France didn't have the ball. We did get one or two turnovers where we competed well, stayed in our feet and just got past the ball, Darris in particular. But there was a good few times when guys shot up and made the tackle. And very different, not so much from Andy Farrell, but very different from any time, any sort of Joe Schmidt defense, where Ireland always seemed to be far more passive and they keep the line, but would really only attack with line speed in their own 22. Whereas I suppose with the arrival of Nian Aber at, um, at Leinster, and I think Dennis Leamy's sort of increasing maturity as a defensive coach at Munster, the team and the fact that like, Easterby only has one job now in the Irish setup. Um, some of the decisions around line speed and some of the executions of the tackles that followed the line speed were very impressive. And Robbie's so a big, better defender and, and a Robbie's better tackler. A better defender, better tackler than Gary Ringrose. Than Gary Ringrose. But like very, very different sort of defensive effort last year, but super effective. So again, it it isn't just a matter of it stayed still. I think if you're looking if you're if you're sort of reviewing matches that you've the the bulk of the guys have played in or a lot of the guys have played in or be involved in and you look back like two years to or last year like if you look you know if you're in Torrance South Africa and you look to this season or the season before you're going we defended this way in this match and it worked for us but we had to concentrate on doing this this is what we're going to do we defended this way against pretty much the same opposition but different and this is what worked for us so we have to look to repeat that um, that the team can play well in different ways, which is always the hallmark of a great team. Um, so Ireland give themselves a real shot now at back-to-back Grand Slams. You know, I, I, if you beat France away in your first match and you've got three matches at home, which is the order of business, um, you've got to fancy your chances. It's. Do you think there'll be much, uh, or do you think? He will shuffle around the same squad roughly for Italy. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say there'd be many changes. The schedule is kind to us. 
We played on, on Friday against France away. Our next game is Italy Sunday at home. So a longer than typical split. Then we have a week off before we play Wales at home. So there's given the standard of performance um, and given that you only played one match together in the last four months, it would be, which is sort of be, I'm going to say wrong to drop any players. Nobody deserves to be dropped after that game. There might be a little bit of shuffling. But secondly, you also do need to, to play them together. Like this would only be their second match together in four months. So, and the fact that then they have a week off um, and they've, they've had a, more than seven days off between uh, France and Italy will allow them to pick, I would say, a very strong team against Italy. Um, I've no, like, the only fears I have in the Italy match are to usual. You can you can lose someone to a red card much easier these days than in in you know previous Six Nations five six years ago, uh, which will make the game tougher. Uh, but like our the last we've played Italy in the Six Nations five times at home in the last decade, and average winning margin is like thirty nine points. Like we've pumped them every time we've played them at home under Schmidt or Farrell. Uh, Italy had in Rome are always a much more difficult test than they are away from home for Ireland. And we've given them a, a couple of good beatings in Rome as well. We've had a couple of tighter matches. So I'd expect us to pick a strong team. The team looked very, very confident. And I don't think that uh, the Italians will be able to handle the rhythm. So again, it'd be a case of I think Ring Rose is out, so I think it'll prob they'll probably go with a six-two split again because the quality is in the second round back row, and get the subs on early, and make sure that we just play too too fast, too strong, too hard, too sophisticated for Italy, and um, and and try and try and put a try and put a real beating on them so that they send everyone home happy and. The player's happy into their rest week. Digs like a demented mole there. How good are these Irish? Well, the Irish have come to play, haven't they? Yeah, for sure. Referee blows for half time. Did you see the 20s? Yeah, super game. Brilliant game. Uh, let's talk about our favourite 20s players. <laughs> oh, the, the big two for me. I, I, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it all... Um, that was Saturday night. So I was thinking about it on Sunday, like who did I think played better, Gavin or Gleason? Like they were both in our beloved marking system. I'd say we're both ten out of ten or seven out of seven in Eddie Jones' system. I thought both players were outstanding, absolutely outstanding. Both players look like they're in a rush to play Test rugby, and Gavin to me has made more progress over last year, but only because Gleason was fucking amazing last year anyway. Um, Gavin was good last year, I thought. Last year he was, uh, like, it was you could tell he was a really good athlete, but I thought he was a sort of a straightforward player. And now he is so involved in everything. He plays with such a competitive edge. He's really fit. Um, like, his level of involvement in that game, tackling, attacking, passing, Rooking, counter rooking were exceptionally good. 
He he really really impressed me. I thought those two guys in particular stood out uh, amongst all the players on the pitch. The French number twenty one that came on was really good. The sub back row. Um, but our two lads were better than them. And then overall, again, another really coherent, cogent performance, a sign of a very well-coached team. And the other thing about this pack is it's massive. You know? As, as with last year's pack, this one just has Spicer in it. Which this one has Spicer in it. Extra large. But yeah. yeah, certainly when you're looking at the back five last year and like you're looking at Gleeson and Ruin Quinn as two at the back row, and you're thinking, Jesus, like these guys are big five, for pros. The whole back five are big, are big. So Joe Hopes is a big guy. Bryn right Ward now. was good. Um, Evan O'Connell, another repeat, big. Uh, Spicer, enormous. Um, it was like it was a great game. Like if you, if you can beat France at twenties, the rest of your season is so much easier because you're just chock full of confidence. And the Irish team generally gets better the more that they play, but it also gets better if they beat France just because the amount of confidence that they take from it. So to beat France in your first match away from home, uh, ah, geez, like it's, it's great. It really it really sets them up. I like the look of Hugo McLaughlin on the wing. Um, thought he looked a very comfortable footballer. Not everything went his way, um, but... Very diligent tackler. Didn't didn't look very flustered. Seemed to have a very good uh, skill set, good rounded skill set. Again, don't know if he's got like absolute out and out pace, but sort of prepared to over overlook that because like by and large Ireland already aren't producing anybody with out and out pace, with the exceptions of Balakoon and who's our friend who doesn't get picked Sexton Sexton. Sexton. And Kilgallen as well is very fast over in Connacht apparently moving the monster. Um, but you see, that's a actually it's an interesting point because like some of the lads that the French picked were tiny, but they're I know I admire I admire their way of picking players. They're going, this guy is really fast. Let's just pick him on the wing. They're they're Mister Steal Your Girlfriend with the blonde ponytail. Bosmaran, Bosmaran, was it? He was like grease oh, lightning. He was super quick. Um, and there's such it's such a joy and Biel Barry, uh, Billy yeah. Barry. Like when you go, no, this guy's a bit small, but very young to be playing test rugby. And then you go, and somebody kicks him a ball in space, and you're shitting yourself. Yeah. And you just give him, when I say a one on one, you one on one plus space. Like you have 14 lads going, oh, I can't catch this lad. You might have one player on the team with an angle who can do anything about it. So I think in potentially that we are. Uh, too sophisticated to like pick the quick lads. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We would find a problem with Jordan Conroy or Aaron Sexton who can't carry carries the ball in the wrong hand. Defensively, all at sea, and you go sort of taking some of the joy out of it. I'm not saying that about either of the current head coaches because at age grade level, you can only pick a certain number of like you have one tranche of players to pick from, and maybe you don't have a super fast guy in it. Uh, and Andy Frow can do what he wants, he wins literally every game he plays. Um, but I think that there is sometimes you can you can overthink a um, like a player's defensive. Like I think like Jordan Conroy, you know, he's contracted Connor for a while and it didn't stick. And you're going, this guy is amazing to watch. And Terry, oh, Terry Kennedy would like was yeah. in the Leinster Academy, and you know never played. But it's, it's why it's exciting to see Andrew Smith play for Connacht. Yes, yeah. he's just quicker than other guys. Uh, like he's quicker than the French guys he plays against. 
and he's an outrageous finisher. And like you only get a window with these guys. It's sort of from 21 to 26. After, like when you're 26 up, you need to be a good footballer. You need to have the rounded skill set. From 21 to 76, you just need to be fast. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not saying like that you have to just always pick the fastest guys, but I'm saying there's real joy in not being not being too pessimistic about players and going, I want to get this guy. And this is a further, further going back to like, when you have a guy like Tom O'Hearn, who Roundtree is using in exactly the right way, he's there going, I want this guy, this giant, quick guy who can reach into this guy. He was the huge, biggest wingspan in Irish rugby. Um, so it's one of them to getting, getting him doing the things he's good at. So I'll pick him at six and play him essentially on the wing in open play. Whereas, whereas like... Van Gran, who you know was showing it at at Bath that he's like he's got coaching chops, like some coaching chops more than he showed in Munster. But he was there going, I'm not going to pick Tom O'Hearn at fucking any position. I'm going to like pick Don Witcherly Senior, and and just you know how could you how could you have Tom O'Hearn in your setup and not want to pick him like whenever you can? It's the same thing with like you get Ryan Baird in your team somewhere, play him on a fucking wing. So I, I would be, uh, I was, I was, I thought the match was, was really enjoyable to watch. I thought it was a really high standard. Um, those twenties matches, the twenties tournament is a great tournament and it's, um, it's, it's really enjoyable to, I wish there was more, God, I wish there was more information on the RFU website about the players. You know, some of them like just it's it's like a closely guarded secret. I mean, fifteen doesn't pass. <laughs> <laughs> well, that secret's out. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, he butchered that one. God, um, he learned a hard lesson though, didn't he? Somebody he got his belt wrong as well. else wrote an article. I think it was in the Sindo, just saying the Six Nations is great because you know what's happening. You know that it's on, it starts in the first week of February. It used to start in January, and it's one of the best things they used to, and the English rugby world used to have these articles about, well, they need to move the Six Nations, and this is the way that they'll run it. They'll have a window, and a window, and a window. The Six Nations will be on in April. And you're there thinking to yourself, no, 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 my friend. The Six Nations will be on in February and mid-March, and they haven't moved it for years, and it's been absolutely brilliant, and... The 20s matches gets played in the evening time. So this this time, typically it's a Friday night, but May match was on Friday, so they played it on Saturday evening. And you talk to people with the weekends coming up and you go, oh, the 20s are on. I love watching the 20s. And like people who are sort of rugby fans, but not the diehards that would watch every single match, like they love watching the 20s. Um, because you know when it's, and it's great, because you know it's going to be on. Yes, um, such a good tournament. And it's it's really enjoyable to watch. They they don't play it in the big stadiums. They sort of bring it around the place or you play. It depends on your country. Like England tend to bring it around a bit. France definitely bring it around a bit. Um, Ireland play it in Mosgrave. Yeah. And that's like that's a real win because it's there's some of the biggest matches that Cork gets uh, with the fact that Thomond is, is the main ground for Munster. And they get great crowds. Uh, they have the artificial pitch now, so it's ne- you're never going to be playing in a bog, um, and it's a it's a cr- it's a cracking competition. 
and the fact it's on free-to-air telly. So you don't know any of the players in the first match because the IRFU aren't telling you anything. These guys are in like MI5 <laughs> um, or the SAS or something. Like that. It's just like black rectangles playing. Uh, but by the end... You know who they are because you've watched them for five weeks. Yeah, and you're arguing about who they sh- who they should be taking the place of. In the yeah, Barrels <laughs> are put these four lads in. Put Gleason in. <laughs> I reckon that's and I'm not. I don't think I'm getting carried away. I think Farrell knowing him and it's just coming up to his probably his last. I think I don't think he's doing the autumn internationals with Ireland. I think he's so the South Africa thing will be his last coaching thing uh stint with arm before he goes in the lines so he'll try and organize in my opinion like Farrell will try and organize like four or five extra games certainly well two extra games two tests two extra games and it would not surprise me if he took uh gleason and gavin in a tour in a torn squad of 40 because those guys have test level uh ability it's a case of it's a case of how to get how soon they get there. When I look at those two players, like, you know, these guys are both gonna be test players. Mm-hmm.